All right, I guess we can get started. I just want to remind everybody, as if you don't know, we have a test a week from today. Right? First test. So if you want to know what the tests are like, right, on the web page, on Blackboard, there is an old, not, well, yes, there's a representative test. You can download it. The answers are on it. It'll let you know, right? Basically, the test, first half are just a bunch of multiple choice questions. And then the second half is some fill-in-the-paragraph sort of questions where everybody has to answer a series of, you know, give me a couple of lines, give me a paragraph, give me an illustration for some sort of, uh, of answer to the, to, the, to the test itself. I think we might have to put people in the lab. They might have to go to the lab to take the test. Because there might be like you know there might be no seats left in here, but I'll let you know. I'll let everybody know by at least by Monday or in the lab tomorrow if people in the lab are going to go to the lab to take the test. Yeah. I thought the test was Monday or. Wednesday. No, it's Wednesday, right? Today's Wednesday. Uh oh. Yeah, next Wednesday, October fifth. Right? Today's the 28th. It's next Wednesday. All right, so just, right, I'll decide by Friday, and I'll let everybody know in the lab on Thursday, and then we can just sort of go from there. The other thing is, right, that you can see when I open the lab and I open the lecture and I start doing things, I've been fooling around with that Camtasia program. So it records everything. It records all the lectures. So I've taken all of those, and I put them on Blackboard. Right, and I'll, I'll keep, I will continue to put them on Blackboard every Friday. So by this Friday, all the lectures will be there, right, except for the, well, I could even put the lecture on Monday up there too, all right? So as of Friday on Blackboard, well, as of today, all the lectures are up there for all the lectures up to last Friday. And then by this Friday, this week's lecture will be there. And next Monday, I'll put Monday's lecture there. All right, so the other thing that's happening here is it doesn't look like this is going to let me open my whole macrophage uh, talk, and that was supposed to be on the second half today. So I think we might skip to do neutrophils today, and then we'll do all macrophages on Friday if I can't get it opening. So when we were together on Monday, right, we were talking about hematopoiesis and the ability of one common stem cell in the hematopoietic pathway to be able to differentiate down one of two pathways, either toward the lymphoid pathway or the myeloid pathway, and then that individual hematopoietic stem cell, that pluripotent stem cell, is going to be able to differentiate to, be able to produce every single cell in the bone marrow, every single cell in the circulatory system. Right. And each stem cell, each of these stem cells, is going to be self-renewing. Right? It's either going to divide to be a new stem cell, or it's going to be able to differentiate. We'll talk uh, in, a, in a minute about what sort of signals might be involved for this sort of right, decision-making right here, to either self-replicate or to become a, a new cell. And we talked a little bit about the stem cells themselves, talked a little bit about the stem cells in the bone marrow 
So here we're going to start with this, uh, this uh, hematopoietic stem cell. It's going to go either down the lymphoid line to become T cells and B cells, or down the myeloid line to become macrophages or any other cell in the, in the circulatory system, including red blood cells and platelets. <clears throat> And we talked a little bit about the environment. And then we started to talk about how we're going to be able to study these stem cells, how we're going to be able to detect cells committed to a certain lineage. If you remember, we were going to grow them in soft agar. Right, so we had our agar with our different, right, with our different cells that are sort of trapped inside the agar. Right, so all these different, all this, cellular material we're going to get from the bone marrow. We're going to take the bone marrow, we're going to grow them up in these individual wells. And here's sort of a picture of what we're talking about. In this picture, right, this experiment, they put in some of those stromal cells in. So they put in those fibroblasts in. And here, they added the bone marrow cells. And then after a while, right, these bone marrow cells start to grow. And you can see these small little colonies. So as they're sitting inside the agar in here, they're just going to start to divide. And they're going to start to make all sorts of different colonies in here. Right? Until eventually they're going to get big enough where we're going to be able to see them. And then we're going to be able to separate them out and start to study them. And here's just an electron micrograph of what's going on here. So here what we're seeing is you're seeing the stromal cells here on the bottom. And then you're seeing these these uh, colonies starting to grow, right? These cells that are just starting to divide and divide and divide. So if we do that experiment, right, what we're going to find is right, that A, we've said this, that normal cells can't grow in soft agar. Transformed cells can or tumor cells can because they can grow in anything. And the hematopoietic stem cells are only growing agar, but only if the growth factors that they need are going to be there. So what are we going to do? Right, we're going to take some sort of pipette in here and we're going to add growth factors. And we're going to get these growth factors maybe from bone marrow supernatant fluids, maybe from other cells that were growing in culture. And so whatever these cells are secreting, maybe these cells that were growing in culture, when they're secreting things, these things are going to be capable of stimulating these cells to grow. Right, so we're going to look at all sorts of different supernatants. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take you know, those supernatants and maybe we're going to start fractionating them, right? Biochemically, we're going to start to purify proteins out until we get single sort of proteins in here that are going to be directed directly towards any one of these cells so that we can see what these cells are going to start to grow. If we do that and we take, let's just say, supernatants from the bone marrow, what we find is we only get macrophages. Right, so only macrophages are going to start to grow, right, so that all these other cells are going to start to die, right, because they don't have the growth factors they need, so only macrophages are going to grow. If we start purifying all sorts of different things, what we can find is we can find growth factors for these type of cells, and then we can find growth factors for these cells. Right, by adding these different purified proteins to our cultures. And one of the first ones we found was a, uh, was a growth factor that stimulated the development of erythroid cells, that stimulated 
right? Red blood cell formation. And this is called erythropotent, right? Erythro, red blood cells, and potent, it's capable of, of stimulating red blood cell production. As it turns out, right, erythropotent is one of the darlings of the biotechnology industry. In 1989, purified erythropotent, right, once we sort of found this out and we were able to, to identify the protein, get the DNA sequence, start growing it in bacteria, and just start, start to make lots and lots and lots of this particular protein and purify it and then put it into drug trials, right, in 1989, it was approved for a chronic kidney disease. So a lot of times you'll see on television, even today, right, I haven't seen the advertisement for a while, Right, it's that advertisement when that, the guy's an auctioneer and he starts auctioning, right, it probably was on last year or two years ago, he starts auctioning off things and they said, oh, John, it's good to see you back, how's your cancer? Oh, well, I took this great drug and blah, blah, blah. So you could see, right, how this would make a really good drug because if, if a, a patient was on chemotherapy and if that chemotherapy was starting to destroy some of those myeloid precursor cells, some of those hematopoietic stem cells. Right? We said all the, the cells inside the bone marrow are going to be uh, subject to inhibition by chemotherapeutic agents because those chemotherapeutic agents go against any rapidly dividing cell. So for giving those chemotherapeutic agents and these cells start dying in our bone marrow, right, we're going to give those patients erythropoietin. And we're going to stimulate the production of red blood cells. So then those patients are going to feel better, right? They're going to feel uh, like they're not losing their breath, like they have more energy because they're getting more oxygen. As it turns out, erythropotent is one of the major sort of biological chemicals that blood doping looks for. Right? You hear about all these people in the Olympics who have, are disqualified because they're doing illegal things. Well, if you take too much erythropotent, right, they're going to look for erythropotent in your bloodstream because, right, why is that going to be important? Because if I take erythropotent and I stimulate the production of red blood cells and now I have twice as many red blood cells as you do, I have a competitive advantage because I have twice the oxygen carrying capability in my bloodstream. It means that I can bring oxygen to my muscles more, not more efficiently, but just better than you can, right? With your sort of inferior red blood cells, right? I just have that many more red blood cells, so I would have a competitive advantage. So that's one of the things that, well, I don't think people get caught for it anymore because it's just, you know, it's so obvious now in, in doping and blood tests for the Olympics and for other things that people don't do it anymore. But that was one of the first sort of biological proteins that people were looking for besides, you know, Biological, I mean, except right, non-biological things. Well, those steroids are biological things, but you know, you get natural sort of products. So we can add another factor, right? A different factor, and we could find that we're going to stimulate just granulocytes. Right? So we have all these different assays we're we're taking forward and going forth, and what we came to find out was, right, after you sort of do all of these, you know, supernatant fluids, adding them to your, to your cultures, you can use this assay to start to purify all sorts of different growth factors. So these growth factors are called cytokines. We're going to talk a lot about cytokines over the course of the, of the semester, right? Cytochemical kinds, stimulation. So these cytokines are 
chemicals that are communication molecules of the immune system. And then we call these other ones colony stimulating factors, because right, that's what they were doing. They were stimulating colonies, or CSF, colony stimulating factors. So we had uh, a certain factor that was able to stimulate macrophages. So it was macrophage colony stimulating factor. Right? It's now called CSF1. We had granulocyte monocyte colony stimulating factor. If we added GMS, uh, GMCSF or, it's called colony stimul stimulating factor 2 now, if we added that to our cultures, we would find we would get granulocytes and macrophages. We had granulocyte colony stimulating factor, CSF3. Right? Clearly, if we add that to our cultures, then we get granulocytes predominantly. Right? is the cell that's going to be inside our cultures. And then there was another one that is even further back on the stimulation sort of uh, activity, and that's called multi-CSF or interleukin-3. Interleukin is a type of a cytokine, right? These are called interleukins. It means in between leukocytes, interleukin-3. Again, chemical messengers of the immune system. And that's going to stimulate either granulocytes, macrophages, or red blood cells. Right, so we have all these things going on. So if you look back, right, if we look back at, way back here, when we first started doing this, when we first started talking about this, here's our stem cell. It can either self-renew, or it can go down the lymphoid pathway or the myeloid pathway. Right, and here we're going to make, again, T cells or B cells, and here's every other cell inside. You can see all these arrows in here basically have, you can't see them, well, you, maybe you can see them if you've got pretty good eyesight. It says, this says interleukin-3, this says interleukin-7, interleukin-3, this one says GMCSF. So at any one point in time, when this cell or this cell or this cell is being stimulated by these factors, that's what's going to dictate in what direction we're going to go. So if this cell in, in an environment inside the bone marrow is only being stimulated by interleukin-3, or if there's a lot of interleukin-3 inside the bone marrow, we're going to get lymphocytes. If we get GMCSF, right, we said GMCSF for granulocytes or macrophages, and interleukin-3, because interleukin-3 was granulocytes, macrophages, or lymphoid cells, then we're going to go down the myeloid stem cell pathway. So that's what all this, so I, probably from where you're sitting, all this gobbledygook is. These are all sort of the cell factors that are driving the differentiation from this cell basically to red blood cells. And over the, I mean, this is a super simplified sort of uh, diagram. If we needed to fill in all of the factors that we found so far, right, this diagram would probably have to be you know, three or four times the size it is now of all these different growth factors that have been purified and found to be driving hematopoiesis. So what we're doing now is we're looking for ways to be able to purify that pluripotent stem cell. And we're going to use that for disease treatments. Because just imagine, Right, if we had a simple way to purify that cell, so let's say you were going to go in for chemotherapy, maybe a month before you go in for chemotherapy, if you were to go in and basically sit down in the doctor's office or you know, the, the hospital that you're going into, and if you could sort of save 
all of these pluripotent stem cells. So let's say you're going to sit down, and it's going to look like you're going in to donate blood. Right. So we're going to put a needle in this side, and just like you go going to donate blood, we're going to save all that stuff. Only now, instead of taking that needle and that, and that drain and putting it into a sterile, you know, sort of a bottle to save all your blood, we're going to take that blood, we're going to put it through some sort of machine that's going to be able to bind up all of your pluripotent stem cells, and then on the other side, right, you're going to have all that blood go back in so you don't waste all that blood, right? So it just sort of recirculates back. And at the end of the day, if we had a highly enriched population of these pluripotent stem cells, what that mean, means is that when you come back for your chemotherapy in a month, the doctor can really sort of zap you really good, right? He can drive the ability of that drug to kill more tumor cells because they're going to add more drug. Yes, they're going to wipe out your immune system because they're going to probably destroy every single one of these cells. But then at the end, right, you're going to wait a few hours for the drug to dissipate, and then we're going to just give those stem cells back to you. They're going to make their way to the bone marrow, and they're going to start to repopulate your immune system. Now, clearly, you're going to stay in the hospital for a little while, but now we have the ability to give massive amounts of chemotherapeutic agents and not worrying about destroying the immune system or, or, or allowing that patient to be immunocompromised. Okay. So the early experiments, right, in terms of, of a mouse, right, so we're going to take this mouse, we're going to le lethally irradiate this mouse, right, it means we're going to destroy its immune system by, put, uh, by exposing it to gamma radiation. And then we're going to put some cells back in, and we're going to see how well it, these cells, right, from this sort of heterogeneous population, was able to restore that mouse's hematopoietic system. We're going to do this. We're going to purify it a little bit more. Right, we're going to get rid of these cells. We're going to try to keep these cells. We're going to add these cells back to a different mouse. We're going to do some more purifications, and then we're going to get, right, we're going to purify further and further. We're going to get rid of all these differentiated cells, and eventually we're going to come back with, right, a small amount of cells. So in this diagram over here, this is the number of cells that are going to be in injected. This is some sort of survival rate, right? This means the mouse doesn't die at all. So over here, if we just take bone marrow cells, right, we need at least 10 to the fifth bone marrow cells to be able to repopulate and allow that mouse to survive. But as we're enriching more and more, right, we need less and less cells. So here we're down to basically a hundred from, from several thousand cells to a couple of hundred cells. And eventually, in this sort of diagram, we're over here where we only need a couple of cells to repopulate the bone marrow and, bless you, and start the immune system all over again. So there's a lot of biotechnology companies out there that are looking for right, this cell. We know pretty well what this cell is in the mouse, but you know, that doesn't do us any good uh, for, uh, for disease sort of therapy. That doesn't help us anymore. Right? So people are really starting to narrow down on this stem cell as a cell for human drugs. Now, the latest research right, that just came out a couple of, a couple of weeks ago suggests, right, now these are all cell surface molecules. Remember we talked about, about the CD nomenclature? So here's a bunch of CD molecules, right? So here's CD38, CD45, right? A bunch of other cell surface molecules. 
So now people think that these cells are Lin minus CD34 positive, CD38 negative, CD45 RA negative, Thi1 positive, row low, right, low amount of this cell surface molecule, CD45F, they think that those are finally human stem cells. Right? They think that these are the hematopoietic stem cells. So if we have, let's say we have a bunch of columns and we have a bunch of antibodies to CD34, right? So we put those cells through this column, it'll stick to CD34, all the other cells will wash off, right? We put it through, if we have Phi1 is present inside our column, if we have an antibody to CD49F, right? All the other cells will start washing through, start washing through, start washing through. We're going to separate them out, and by the end of the day, we should have this cell from a person. So that's the holy grail, really, is to get that cell so we can isolate it and use it to repopulate your immune system. Right? So a lot of people are sort of looking at that as a way for this purification to take place. The other thing that people have started to find is, right, I put this back here, just to sort of show, right, when we're looking at this picture, this picture appears to be a one-way street. We're going to start from our least differentiated cell, and through a series of steps, we're going to get to the penultimate right, differentiated cells out here. These are the cells that are leaving the bone marrow. So all these arrows are pointing forward. They're all going. Right, some of them are pointing down, but they're still pointing forward. So all the research up until a couple of years ago suggested that right, once you sort of go down this pathway, right, once you go down this pathway, you can go into multiple targets. Once you go down this pathway, right, again, you can go into multiple things, but we're basically def definitely going in one direction. New studies show eh, that maybe it's a little more robust than we thought it was. Right? Maybe we can take a right-hand turn here, or maybe we can take a U-turn here and go back. Right? There could be times if, you know, let's say signals come into the bone marrow, new signals from the, from the periphery come in to say, you know what, we really need macrophages. We really need neutrophils. Right? So these sort of factors start to fade away new factors start to come in, so now we can take this cell and maybe we can turn this cell if we add new factors to this, right, inside that bone marrow environment, and we can start driving things in this direction. Or, you know, maybe we need more red blood cells, so if more erythropoietin is being made, maybe this cell can turn, maybe this cell can turn, and we can drive bone marrow production to a lot of red, red blood cells, right? So there have been some experiments to show that early T-cell progenitors that have lost B-cell potential, right? So here's T-cell progenitors that have lost B-cell uh, potential can still be able to generate macrophages. So here we go from B into B-cell. We're supposed to be going to T-cells, right, according to this diagram. But there's some evidence to suggest that this could be a precursor for macrophages under the correct conditions. So it doesn't seem to be so, you know, unidirectional here. It appears, right, it's even more data now, that we have all sorts of different interactions that can take place where this progenitor cell doesn't necessarily have to be a T-cell progenitor. 
It can basically right, become very flexible under the correct conditions to be a, right, it's like it almost takes a step back to become a different progenitor now. Right? And under the correct conditions, that appears to be able to happen. So people are starting to look at those conditions. So, right, the most important part in here is going to be this decision, right, for that hematopoietic stem cell. And that decision is, do I self-renew or do I shoot inside here and start becoming any one of these other cells of the immune system? So people have been looking at the regulation of this particular cell. And they've come up with a couple of experiments to show how we can drive right, this cell into the hematopoietic sort of pathway here. And it's called the push and the pull hypothesis. So there's going to be a certain push up here where certain signals, right, certain cytokines, certain sort of bacterial products can push this, right, into this pathway to make the more differentiated cells. And it makes sense, right, if, so, if, if certain inflammatory cytokines are present or if certain pieces of bacteria are present, right, that's a signal that something's wrong. We need more cells out there in the periphery. So that's sort of the push part. And then the pull part is if, right, if this T cell starts depleting rather rapidly, inside the bone marrow, right? If more calls go for T cells to be able to, to be released, right? Or macrophages or neutrophils to be released. So then, you know, if we had a certain amount of neutrophils in the bone marrow and those neutrophils are getting less and less and less and less, it means for some reason those neutrophils are being pulled out into the periphery. So maybe like C3E is being present, is being produced out in the periphery and it's making its way to the bone marrow and it's calling for the release of more neutrophils and more macrophages, as these sort of pools start to deplete, that can pull these hematopoietic stem cells into, right, not self-renewing anymore, but turning into the cells that we need out there in the periphery. So that's sort of the, the newest sort of idea that is coming out in terms of, right, turning the corner, and having the ability of these cells to be able to be drawn out into the periphery. All right, so this is where we're going to go off the map. Right, so we should have been going to phagocytes, but this dopey computer, for whatever the reason, isn't allowing me right, to open. All right, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to come back to that and we're going to neutrophils. So yeah, so everybody who had all of their you know, nice notes, sorry, I just, what? Okay. Hmm. Yeah, well, what do you want me to do? Okay. So, what we're going to do is, we're going to go further on, and we're going to talk about granulocytes. We'll come back and we'll, we'll finish macrophages on Friday. All right, so, we talked about lymphocytes, talked about T cells and B cells, talked about where cells are coming from. 
sorry, but now we're going to granulocytes. All right? We'll come back to macrophages. So we said that granulocytes were white blood cells that contained conspicuous granules in their cytoplasm. And the major sort of, of granulocyte that we were going to talk about was the neutrophil. And it's also called right, a PMN, or polymorphonucleoleukocyte, because it has that multi-lobe nucleus. Right? I'm sure there's a picture over here. So here's our neutrophil. In this cartoon, you can see the granules right, inside. Here you can see the multi-lobe nucleus. And again, in our, in our uh, histological stain of peripheral blood, we have red blood cells, we have platelets, and here are the neutrophils, right? This trilobed nucleus. As it turns out, right, here's a scanning electron micrograph of a neutrophil. It's also capable of of performing phagocytosis. So a neutrophil is a phagocyte as well. The neutrophil is sort of this interesting cell because it has very few mitochondria. It's going to get most of its energy from anaerobic glycolysis. And it's going to do this because the areas that the neutrophil is probably going to be needed and where it's going to engage the enemy might be a, 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 an area that has a very low oxygen content. So if it's out in the area, if there's some sort of an inflammatory event taking place in the periphery, right, and we have a low oxygen sort of environment, we don't want to send one of our best troops out there Right. one of our crack members of our team, and be at a disadvantage. If there's no oxygen in the tissue spaces where this neutrophil has to go, this neutrophil is at a disadvantage. So, very few mitochondria. We're going to get most of our energy from anaerobic glycolysis. We'll talk about it in a minute. The other thing about neutrophils is they're phagocytic. They're capable of being able to engulf an invader. Right? Just like a macrophage that we talked, oh, we didn't talk about it yet. Just like a macrophage we'll talk about on Friday. So mac uh, neutrophils are also one of the only cells that we can differentiate histologically inside the bone marrow. When we started talking about hematopoiesis, I said that it's very hard to be able to recognize an immature cell, right? Because all the cells look alike inside the bone marrow. But the neutrophil has a very sort of histologically identifiable pathway. So metamyelocyte is sort of the last differentiation. Once it differentiates from a metamyelocyte into a neutrophil, it's going to leave the bone marrow. But we can see this developmental pathway right from the stem cell into cells that are called promyelocytes, myelocytes, metamyelocytes, right? So we can see that differentiation histologically inside the bone marrow. So that's the first thing that's a little bit different about neutrophils. But the most important part about the neutrophil itself is that we have lots of them inside our bloodstream. Right? Next to red blood cells, right? this is the next highest cell inside the bloodstream. Right? There are about 10 to the 11th neutrophils going to be released every day. 
Right? That's tens of millions of cells every day from the bone marrow. Now we're going to get those released every day because they don't live for very long. What they do is they're going to leave the bone marrow. They're going to circulate anywhere from 7 to 10 hours inside the bloodstream. They're going to migrate into the tissue spaces. And after three days, they're dead. Very short-lived cell. We said that some lymphocytes are going to stay in your body for the rest of your life or forever. We'll talk about that memory response later on. A red blood cell, yeah, red blood cells, they take a lot of abuse. They only last for about 120 days or so. And red blood cells take a whole lot of abuse because, right, as we're going in the circulatory system, and if we're going from veins, you know, getting, getting smaller and smaller, and eventually we get into capillaries. Capillaries are so small that the red blood cells basically go single file through the capillaries. Right, so you can imagine, right, all the red blood cells, we said that right there are tens of billions of blood cells, of red blood cells in the body at any one point in time. So as they're zipping through here and they're making their way into the capillaries, they get a lot of wear and tear on them. So they only last for, you know, three months or so. But neutrophils, right, because they have a few mitochondria, right, anaerobic glycolysis isn't so efficient, right, in forming energy. So they're only going to last for about three days or so. So at any one point in time, better than half of the bone marrow are neutrophils. If you were to go in, take a sample of bone marrow, put it onto your slide, stain it, about 60% of the cells would be neutrophils. So the vast production of cells, white blood cells, right, and most of the cells inside the bone marrow are going to be neutrophils. But yes, we're going to get a lot, a lot of red blood cells. So basically, 60% are probably neutrophils and 40% are red blood cells, and all the other cells are fractional in terms of being able to do different, to, to do a diff count of the bone marrow itself. So we got lots and lots and lots of neutrophils being released from the bone marrow. But there are other granulocytes. Right? We talked about eosinophils before. We talked about right, other granulocytic cells. So eosinophils have a major role against parasites, or so it's thought. And basophils are the cells of allergic reactions. Eosinophils are, are starting to become more in vogue in the immunology research. Because the study of the immune system and study of the circulatory system, study of hematology was very biased when it started to get going. Right? Let's say at the beginning of the 20th century into the early you know, decades of the 20th century, most of the research that was being done right, on the hematopoietic system was being done in the United States, it was being done in Europe. So when you collect blood from people who live in the United States or people who live in Europe, you don't see many eosinophils. So, right, what's, the, what's the conclusion? Well, clearly, if you're, if you're biased, the conclusion is, yeah, eosinophils don't seem very important. But if you go to other places in the world, 
and that's you know all the other places in the world, you'll find that the vast majority of people living in other places in the world have lots and lots and lots of eosinophils in their circulatory system. That's because we're basically soft here, right? What are we going to do? I'm looking around, right? Everybody has their bottled water. Every right, you're you're really polluting the the, the the whole planet by not recycling, right? So, but anyway, so everybody has their bottled water. I see a couple of uh, right donkey donut things up here, right? You go out, you get your nice fresh water, you get some hot coffee. You don't think twice about, oh my God, is is my water contaminated with parasites? You go to stop and shop. Right, you're going to go to Shaw's, I don't know, you can go to Trader Joe's, I'm not picking on anybody. You're going to go there, you're going to take that hamburger meat, you're going to bring it home, you're going to throw it on the grill. You're not even going to think twice about it being infected with parasites, are you? You're not going to look through it. You're not going to try to decide, oh, maybe I should cook it. Like they say I should cook it for a long, long time to kill the parasites that might be in here. When I was growing up, my mother would take right pork. When we had pork for right the other white meat, when we had it for supper, my mother would turn it into shoe leather, right? Because there were a lot of parasites in pork back in the day. But I don't think there are that many parasites in pork anymore. I know when I go home and I cook my pork chops, I, you know, I like them nice and sort of rare, so I don't cook them so hard because I don't care about parasites. But everybody else in the world does. Parasitic infections is probably one of the major things that the immune system needs to do every other place in the world. Right? We've taken care of that right? by purifying our water and having a pretty good food containment system. But everybody else in the world, you go to any other, you know, I hate to use the word third world area, and those, those individuals have lots of eosinophils in their bloodstream. So eosinophils are becoming more and more and more important. So eosinophils, basophils, and then there's this other cell, this mast cell, that's getting more and more important as well. We didn't really know what mast cells did. But now we know. Mast cells play a very important role in allergic reactions. They're this round, elongated cell Right? Normal size, anywhere from 6 to 12 microns in diameter. They originate from the pluripotent cells. We're not sure how yet. Right? They derive and are released into the bloodstream as mast cells progenitors. And they don't circulate inside the bloodstream. They make their way right, to different tissues, and they become long-lived residents of those tissues. And they're located, right, again, by surface boundaries between tissues and the external environment. So you can find a lot of mast cells inside the, inside the intestine, all along your respiratory system. People are starting to see how these mast cells are going to be as important as eosinophils and basophils. Just because we can't see them in that peripheral blood smear, now, under certain disease states, can you see mast cells in the blood? Absolutely. Is that person not very comfortable? <laughs> Absolutely, right? Because you have, you have an excess of mast cells, so, so you have cancer of the mast cells. But just because you can't see them in the bloodstream, right, doesn't mean they're not a granulocytic cell. They are, 
They just live in the tissues. So they leave the bone marrow and head straight for tissues. So we really know what the signals are for that to take place. We don't know how that's going to take place, right? But we do know that mast cells is an important granulocyte. So again, if we're looking at eosinophils in this cartoon, we can see the different granules inside here. Here you can see the granule staining. This is a different type of a stain. Right before, we were using a Wright's Giemsa stain, and that's what all the other pictures were. This is a different stain. You can see in this stain, we're really making red blood cells look like red blood cells. We still have our platelets, but this stain is able to show the granules of the eosinophil better. And if we look at basophils, right, basophils has these large granules. And again, we're back to Wright's Giemsa with red blood cells and platelets. And you can see the granules inside those basophils now. So neutrophils right, are the main cell that these granules were first sort of noticed and studied. So inside the cytoplasm, there are two types of granules for the neutrophil, the primary granules and the secondary granules. The primary granules are called, are called azurophilic. Azuro means dye-loving, again. When people first started to look histologically at these things, and they had microscopes, they started to add all sorts of different dyes to everything. Right? That's the first thing. You know, oh, well, let's throw this in, see what it does. Right? So if you threw in a certain sort of dye, you would see a difference in that the granules would become stained. So about two-thirds of all the granules are azurophilic granules, and they contain things like lysozyme. Right? We talked about lysozyme being that major sort of chemical that's involved with destruction of peptidoglycan, so destruction of right, bacteria. We have a whole bunch of different hydrolytic enzymes inside the primary granules. The other granules, called specific granules, right, secondary granules, about a third of them, all the other ones, and they contain things like collagenase, right, the enzyme to break up collagen, lactoferrin, lactoferrin is an iron transport protein, and again, it contains lysozyme to show us how important lysozyme is. So if we look at those granules, right, you can see dark staining granules and light staining granules. Right over here, you can see these dark staining granules and these light staining in this electron micrograph. So most of these are the dark staining granules and then the other ones are the light staining granules. So you can actually see the granules and we can separate out the granules. Right? We can purify out the granules. If we just lyse the cell gently, and we keep the granular components from lysing, we can separate them using different biochemical techniques and then lyse the granules and see what's inside the granules. Right? So we can do a lot of biochemistry of the granule and cell biology based on what's inside the granule. Right? So we can see all those different things taking place. Neutrophils themselves right, have two killing mechanisms, two major ways that they're going to help in the protection of the body to destroy pathogens. Right? Macrophages as well have some of these, these mechanisms, and we'll talk about it on Friday when we talk about macrophages. Right? So we've already talked about lysozyme. There are things that are called defensins, right? defense chemicals, defensins. They're small, positively charged proteins. They cause lysis. Right? They're going to make their way into the membrane of the pathogen and they're going to make, really basically going to poke holes inside. Lactoferrin, right? iron binding proteins, hydrolytic enzymes, 
and the acidic pH of the phagosome. Right? We haven't talked about them. We were supposed to talk about the phagosome today, but on Friday when we talk about the phagosome, you'll see it. All right? So right? all these different sort of things where oxygen isn't involved. So if it has an oxygen-independent mechanism, it also means it needs to have an oxygen-dependent mechanism. So it's going to take atmospheric oxygen that's in the tissue spaces, and it's going to be able to produce some pretty nasty chemicals. We're going to take that oxygen, we're going to break that oxygen up, we're going to break it and, 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 and do a lot of different reactions to it, and we're going to, we're going to manufacture what are called react, uh, uh, reactive oxygen intermediates, or ROI. The concept or the, the, the big picture name of this is called the respiratory burst, right? From respiration, right? We're changing the oxygen molecule. We're going to use oxygen to make toxic intermediates. And what we're going to start with, we're going to start with this multi-protein complex that's called NADPH oxidase, right? And it sits on the plasma membrane of the neutrophil. And as it sits on the plasma membrane of the neutrophil, it's inactive. So it sits there, and when the neutrophil isn't stimulated, nothing happens. It's a baseline, there's no pathogens around, the neutrophil hasn't been stimulated. So there's no reason to start to produce these dangerous chemicals that it's going to use, right? These antimicrobial chemicals. When the membrane invaginates, because of some sort of phagocytosis taking place, then NADPH oxidase is on the inside of the cell and it becomes activated. Okay? So NADPH oxidase sort of sits here, and if we're not getting, right, when we talked about phagocytosis before, we said we were going to surround the bacteria. So if we're not surrounding the bacteria, right, if this is just on the membrane of a resting neutrophil, nothing takes place. Once this invagination takes place, this is, under, this is going to undergo some sort of mechanical change, right? and it's going to activate this multi-protein complex. Right? You can see it's this large multi-protein complex with many different subunits. Right? It's got a P40 protein, it means a, a protein of 40,000 molecular weight, a protein of 22,000 molecular weight, 67,000. GP91 means a glycoprotein that's 91,000 molecular weight. So once it starts to be part of, right, this vacuole now, right, because now this is inside the cell, this whole thing is going to be inside the cell as soon as these parts of the cytoplasm come together, right, this vacuole is now inside the cell, it's walled off, and now we're going to start to start the chemical reactions to destroy that bacteria. Okay. So, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to take atmospheric oxygen. Now again, right before, right, you heard me say, oh, in, in places right, where there's not a lot of oxygen. Right, that's why we need that anaerobic respiration. Yeah, but there's enough oxygen there for us to use for what we need it for. So we're going to take our oxygen, and in the, in the presence of NADPH, 
right? We're going to change it. We're going to reduce the NADPH, right? We're going to add a hydroxyl ion, and this hydroxyl ion is going, to, or this hydrogen ion is going to allow the pH to increase, right? Because that's the definition of acid pH. We get more of right H positive than OH in, inside a, of a reaction. So this is going to start to increase. And what we're going to make over here is we're going to make superoxide anion. And the superoxide anion is a free radical. Right? That dot minus means that it's very reactive. Right? I don't remember a lot of stuff from organic chemistry. But I remember that O2, right, anything that has a dot minus over there, it means one of the electrons has been stripped away. That means it's going to be very, very reactive because it wants to get that electron back. Right? So this is the superoxide anion. So it's going to start reacting with all sorts of different things inside that environment. And that inside that environment, right, that we have right here, are going to be bacteria. So that O2, right, that superoxide anion is going to start to interact with proteins on the surface of that bacteria and it's going to start to denature those proteins. It's going to start to strip electrons from that protein, right, because it needs to be in a more stable configuration. It needs to be back, right, to atmospheric oxygen, to regular old O2. Right? So that's one of the first things that it's going to be able to make. Right? from molecular oxygen to this superoxide anion. Okay, now that clock is right back on time, I'm sure it is, right? So, we will continue this on Friday, and we'll talk about macrophages, like we should have been talking about on Friday. Right, don't forget, the test is a week from today. If you have any questions, any problems, come see me.